Hello, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Creedal Catholic. Creedal Catholic is a Catholic theology and apologetics podcast that is faithful to the magisterium and dedicated to the mission of the new evangelization. We're a part of the Vernacular Podcast Network, and if you'd like to support us or find out more about the other shows on our network, head to patreon.com slash vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Patreon.com slash vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to another episode of Creedal Catholic. I'm sitting here uh, virtually, of course, doing proper social distancing with Simone Rizcala, <laughs> who's uh, sitting in her home in California, where it's probably a little bit cooler than it was here today in Colorado. We had like an 84 degree day here, Simone. It was cooler here. It was raining. Oh, wow. Rain. I didn't know it rained in Southern California. Once in a blue moon, it does. <laughs> well, uh, I'm guessing you didn't get wet since your governor has kept you locked indoors. <laughs> I'm under house arrest. I'm under house arrest. Well, maybe this can be a good distraction for you. I'm really excited to talk to you about St. Catherine of Siena. Uh, I think on our last conversation, we actually mentioned St. Catherine because you're a big St. Catherine fan. She's one of my favorites. I think I mentioned the Sacred Unset biography. And if any of my listeners are interested in learning more after this conversation, I highly recommend that resource. Uh, I'll also mention at the outset, or actually I'll let you mention at the outset, Simone, there's another good resource for learning about St. Catherine that, that you've been involved with. So why don't you tell my listeners about that and then we'll get started. Oh, that'd be great. Thanks, Zach. Uh, yes. Uh, Endow, which is a Catholic women's apostolate that mobilizes women into small groups to study Catholic philosophy and theology, has an Endow study uh, on St. Catherine of Siena called Setting the World Ablaze. So if you want to take an eight-week, eight-chapter journey through St. Catherine of Siena's life and her writings. Check it out. Awesome. Yeah, I highly encourage all of my listeners to do this, but especially the women who are listening to this because Endow is a group that uh, is for women in the church. Mm -hmm. Not to say that men can't, of course, uh, go and learn from the various studies that, that uh, Endow has there, but the mission of Endow, as I understand it, Simone, and please correct me since you are the director of program growth there, but the mission is to uh, unite women uh, in the Catholic faith and teach them in the faith and equip them to go out into the world and spread the gospel. Exactly. Cause you can't, you can't love what you don't know. So we've got to know these things. Yeah. I love that idea. You can't love what you don't know. And although I haven't actually said it in that phrase uh, on this podcast, I think in many ways that animates what I'm doing here. Um, and I recognize that not everyone will love, not everyone who's Catholic will love listening to Creedal Catholic, but my own spirituality, I think, has been enhanced. Actually, I know it's been enhanced by studying what I believe, because when I am able to dig deep into the riches of the Catholic tradition, it makes me appreciate so much more what we have as Catholics. Uh, and, and it's so, inexhaustible. Yeah, it's inexhaustible. Exactly. There's, yeah. Yeah, there's always more. There's always more. And I have talked about this idea before on the podcast, but it, it makes sense metaphysically, because if the church is divine, as she is, mm -hmm. uh, and if that divinity springs from God as its source, which it does, then that God who is eternal and infinite and timeless will be, of course, a source of inexhaustible knowledge, like you just said. So there's always, there's always deeper and deeper to go. But honestly, even if, even if it wasn't inexhaustible, Simone, mm -hmm. it's exhaustible enough for me. I mean, like you can't pick up, you can't pick up the summa and like realize, you know, and think that there's more, uh, there's more of your life, you know, than to, to get to all the theology that's already been written, you know? You get frustrated, Zach, because I get frustrated. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. I just, I was telling my, I was telling my parents this, my, my mother this, I just was so, she's like, what is wrong with you? And I said, because there's so much more 
there's so much more to learn. And I never, I will die not having learned it all, not even close. And that frustrates me. And I'm just dealing with it existentially. <laughs> no, I, I completely agree with you. Uh, you. My constant longing is for a 36 hour day. Yes. In which, in which I would still be able to survive on, you know, the six, eight hours of sleep that I normally get. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because I would just have that much more time for studying and reading and doing all the things that I want to do. Because as it is now, you know, we have, we're, we're lay people, we, we're in lay apostolates, uh, we have, we have normal jobs to do. And then, you know, at the end of the day, at the very end of the day is when you get some chance to read up and study. So yep. that can be frustrating itself. But you know, this is getting a little bit, uh, a little bit far afield from our topic, although perhaps not so much since St. Catherine of Siena was also a lay person. Yeah. Um, but I was just reading uh, Cardinal or Francis Cardinal Arinze, and he's, he has this book on the distinct calling of the lay apostolate. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, it's a pretty short, like a hundred page reflection on the lay apostolate, um, in the aftermath of Vatican II and how, um, Gaudium et Spes and, uh, Lumen Gentium helped us kind of refocus on the lay apostolate. Yes. Um, I've been thinking about this idea recently. I mean, Vatican II tried to call attention to the lay apostolate and the distinct role of the laity. Yes. Um, that's been overlooked a lot. And I think what has happened is the inverse. You know, we've had this kind of new clericalism. Mm-hmm. And I could go, you probably would uh, enjoy doing this as well. We could spend a lot of time talking about all the reasons for that and everything. But I think the takeaway <laughs> is like the, the lay people have a certain role. And although I think it would be amazing to be a Dominican priest and be able to um, study all day, every day, the truth of the faith, that's not my vocation. And, and I need to be okay with that. And sometimes that's, sometimes that's a humbling thing to recognize and to say, you know, in prayer, you know, God, help me be okay with my vocation. You know, help me to look at this as something you have called me to. Yes. I love that. I love that. I gave a lecture series on um, Fulton. I was asked to do a lecture series on Fulton Sheen's book, A Priest is Not His Own. And I thought, are you're asking a lay woman to do a talk about a book on priests that was written by Fulton Sheen, who is a priest to priests. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yes, gosh, we could definitely go into that, into that topic because it's a, it's a, it's a co-essential relationship between the hierarchy and the lady and it it's crucial and it's it's the time of the lady now is the time of the lady and we've got to take that seriously so i'm grateful for things like credo catholic well thank you so much i'm grateful for things like endow and i should also mention your website culturalgypsy.com i didn't give you a very good introduction simone i was assuming in part that listeners today will have heard your previous appearance here so let me just introduce you very briefly in a few sentences your background, I mean, as the name Cultural Gypsy uh, implies from your website, your back- background is pretty diverse. Your family is Egyptian. Just before I hit record, you were telling me some, uh, some funny stories about your parents hanging out with uh, their Egyptian friends in California. Um, yeah. And you are Catholic. You attend one of the Eastern churches, though, right? Not a Latin Rite church. Yep. So mm-hmm. that's pretty cool. And uh, by day, you're the director of program growth for endow groups, as we talked about already. And you also, uh, you travel a bit and give talks and classes and all sorts of things. And people can read more about that on culturalgypsy.com. Thank you, Zach. Yeah, well, thanks for joining me today, Simone. I'm really excited to dive into the life of St. Catherine of Siena. I think perhaps the best way to do this is for us to kind of paint with broad brushstrokes the contours of her life. And then I've got some questions that I want us to go through as we, as we contemplate what we can learn from the life of St. Catherine of Siena. I'll say off the top of, uh, off the top of this that I think she's really good to study now, not just because we just had her feast day at the end of April, but because in some ways I think she's a good saint to think about and to ask for the intercession of in the midst of a pandemic where we find ourselves today. She was born in the middle of the bubonic plague in Europe. 
she was born in 1347. Uh, and if you look at the history of the bubonic plague, most experts will agree, I think, that it peaked in Europe around 1347 to 1351. So she was literally born at the very, you know, we have all this, this language of flatten the curve. She was born at the very beginning of the top of the curve, if you will. And so the first four years of her life are, you know, the, the, some of the worst, um, the worst as far as death toll in Europe um, ever in, in recorded human history. So that's pretty remarkable. And then she grows up, obviously, to become this incredibly saintly person, eventually declared a doctor of the church. And all of that. So let me just tell you a little about a little bit about her life, um, and then uh, Simone and I will talk about it. All right. So um, as I mentioned, she was born in 1347. Uh, she was, and this is an amazing fact, the 23rd of 25 children. She was born with her sister Giovanna, twin sister. So she was a twin, uh, and the two twins were numbers 23 and 24. Uh, and there was one more to come later. But um, I mean, her mom. I don't think her mom is a canonized saint. She's not, to my knowledge, but. Um, she probably she probably should be with twenty five kids like that. <laughs> Ambitious. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, and from a young age, Catherine dis- displayed this very um, precocious spiritual nature. She was uh, only six years old when she had this incredible incredible vision of Jesus. She was standing uh, at the top of a valley, looking down, and then up above her was Jesus, who appeared to her in the sky, surrounded by uh, Saints Peter, Paul, and John. And from that point forward, she displayed this remarkable spiritual awareness um, for a child of her age. She would later tell her uh, confessor, um, Raymond of Capua, that it was from that day that she started to really dig into the lives of the saints and the Desert Fathers. I mean, I can't, I can't really imagine a six-year-old doing that. And by the way, this is long before she learned to read. So she's just learning as much as she can about these folks without reading books about them. So she's presumably talking to priests and people religious and her parents, etc. But she became very invested in that. Her parents wanted her to marry, as would be the typical thing for a young woman to do in Italy at this time. But she charted a unique course. Instead of joining a convent, which would be the other logical alternative, you, mar- you marry or you join a convent, she actually, at a young age, decided to join the uh, Third Order of St. Dom- Dominic, now we call them the Late Dominicans. And the kind of, it's not exactly technically correct, but, but sort of a chapter of Late Dominicans there, where she was, was mostly widows. Uh, some married women, but mostly widows. The idea being like they're they're kind of older. This is, uh, you know, we would call these like second career folks now. They've had their families. They're maybe grandmas now. But what they want to do is serve the church, serve the order of St. Dominic as the third order of St. Dominic. So support the, the first order as well as they can uh, and um, perform acts of charity. And Catherine of Siena, as a teenager, was was drawn to the unique charism of these older women, these widows and, and married women who were in the third order. So she joined the Third Order of St. Dominic and just grew in holiness from that point forward. She had a very close relationship with her confessor, Raymond of Capua, um, and she had several mystical experiences that um, really are, um, they're difficult, I think, for the modern imagination to think about, Simone. Uh, some of these stories, for example, um, there's a story, and this is captured in, all of these are captured in the Sacred Unset biography and elsewhere, but um, on one occasion she tells of Jesus taking out her heart, her physical heart, and replacing it with his own heart, his own sacred heart. Um, on another occasion, she tells of receiving the uh, stigmata, although the stigmata were invis- invisible until her death, and then they were visible on her um, body after her death. Um, she also told of a, an experience of a mystical marriage to Christ that happened when she was 21, in which Christ gave her a ring. Um, and so, like very clear, vivid spiritual experiences. Um, in which she's in, she's encountering the risen Lord, and despite that, I mean, I think sometimes you hear about mystics who are also very withdrawn, and so it's it's perhaps not surprising 
uh, when you hear those stories. But St. Catherine was certainly far from withdrawn. She was uh, a woman of letters once she learned how to read and write. Um, and she learned that from her, her fellow Third Order Dominicans. Um, so she wrote a lot. Her, her masterpiece is called The Dialogue. I have not read it. Have you read it, Simone? Only part. Okay. I've heard it's amazing. I do want to read it from start to finish at some point, but it's also, it's pretty big. Uh, and it's intense. It's very intense. You've got to be ready for that. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, this is, the, this is the magnum opus of one of the most spiritually intense saints who ever lived, I think. So it, it makes sense. It's, it's not really light coffee shop reading. Nope. And it's a rehashment of her, of her dialogue with Jesus. So the, the dialogues had already occurred throughout her life. And then it was like this time of rehashing the conversation. And then that's what became the dialogue. Yeah, so. That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> so the dialogue is her, is her work, but, um, she was very active in the world. So she was not just a withdrawn reclusive mystic. She was always doing acts of charity. As I mentioned, she wanted to join the third order because in large part because of their acts of charity in the community. So she was always going out to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, heal the sick, et cetera. She's also, by the way, another reason why she's, I think, appropriate for our time. She's uh, the patron saint of nurses because she was such a, such a loyal and dedicated nurse to so many people who were suffering. Um, she also had a lot of visitors. She had many people, um, men and women, who would come to her for spiritual advice. So in that sense, she had a lot of spiritual sons and daughters. And then she, she started to sort of expand beyond the confines of Siena, her hometown, um, even though she was staying at home, she would, she would travel uh, here and there. Um, she did a lot of, um, uh, basically statecraft for lack of a better word and convinced the Italian city states, many of them to remain loyal to the Pope. Um, she was also alive uh, at the time of the Avignon papacy, um, uh, also called, uh, in some corners, the Babylonian captivity when the, uh, when the Pope uh, basically gave into political forces and set up shop in Avignon, left Rome and, and moved to Avignon, uh, to have protection from uh, protection and, 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 uh, material support from the French, um, French governors. Um, and it was Catherine who was saying, get back here. You're supposed to be in Rome. So it was specifically, it was Gregory 11th who she just hounded repeatedly and repeatedly. Um, and Gregory 11th, the 11th was, um, uh, lacking in courage, but through the constant, uh, intercession, uh, both heavenly intercession, praying for him, but also just, uh, imploring him to come back. He eventually did. And so, uh, I think it's probably stretched to say single-handedly. Um, she had some support from other other saints. Um, Bridget of Sweden, I think, was one of them. But mm -hmm. uh, but Gregory the Eleventh came back to Rome uh, in large part due to Catherine's efforts. So she was instrumental in bringing the Pope back to Rome in in writing the way things were supposed to be there. Um, and I haven't mentioned this, but she died at the age of thirty-three. So all this happened uh, before she was thirty-three, which is is quite an impressive resume. Um, and so it was nineteen eighty. She, I think, had just turned 33, and then she, she took ill in the first part of that year, and she was very weakened from all the um, you know, harsh penances that she had undertaken. Uh, she, she never ate much. She, for, for large parts of her life, would survive only on the Eucharist, uh, and so her body was not, in, uh, was not in great physical health. She had just spent it all um, serving our Lord, and then uh, within a few months, she, she passed away on April 29th, which is why we celebrate her feast day on April 29th. But as I mentioned, patron saint of nurses, uh, also the patron saint against fire and illness, another reason that she's perhaps a good saint for our time. Patron of the United States, of Italy, miscarriages, um, I, I guess against miscarriages, uh, of people ridiculed for their faith, uh, and against sexual temptation as well. So lots of great patronages of St. Catherine. Simone, did I miss anything uh, salient before our discussion here? Thank you. I think you hit the big, the, the big stuff. I think it's... Uh... I mean, when we complain about all of our 
family church issues, you know, Avignon papacy was a pretty, pretty hard one to live through. And so we can always look to St. Catherine for some consolation because at least we don't have that problem. So yeah, well, uh, let's, let's start there. So my first question is, how is St. Catherine a saint for our age? And um, I've already talked about the pandemic stuff. That one is maybe more obvious. She was a nurse and a caretaker. She was born in the midst of Europe's worst plague uh, in recorded history. So maybe the pandemic part of that is obvious, but you just alluded to something, which is, you know, we have problems in the church, but at least it's not that. At least the, the Pope isn't running to uh, Avignon, France, because he's scared and weak. Uh, so, so yeah, yeah. Say, more, say a little bit more about that. Why is yeah. St. Catherine perhaps appropriate for our time? Yes, definitely. Everything that you mentioned, I mean, we, we're hoping our lives will return back to normal and it slowly is with COVID, but I mean, her whole life was marked by the plague. So, you know, could be worse that way. Um, but yeah, I, I, she, I think she's a true saint in, for so many reasons, but one of them is that while she's literally telling the Cardinals and the Pope act like a man, I think those are her exact words. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, act like a man yeah. um, and calling them out. She is also at the same time calling for lay people to be obedient to the authority of the church. So her sanctity is that tension of being obedient to the church and not being an infallible measuring rod the way. And that's a phrase that I borrow often from, from Cardinal Ratzinger from Pope Benedict XVI, where he says, you know, we, when criticize, and it's very easy to criticize the church and our priests and our bishops and, and the Pope and so forth, but like, we're not to make ourselves an infallible measuring rod against anybody, not just a hierarchy. Right. So at the same time that she is really challenging the hierarchy, she is at the same time challenging the lady to be obedient and to be holy. And so there, there is a, a, a tension there of morality that you cannot escape, that you have to suffer uh, Flannery O'Connor said this as much from the church as for it. And to, to live in that tension, I think she's a fantastic example and a help to me on that so that I don't fall into, to, to a spirit of piety on the one hand, thinking that I know better than everything. And I, I know everything about how the church should be run at the same time to, to, um, to be helpful and to be brave in assisting the hierarchy through that co-essential relationship between the lady and the hierarchy like her and to be interesting to praying because she, she not only corrected and encouraged with words, but she took spiritual hits for the church and for their holy. And that's why her body was so badly bruised. If you will, it wasn't just, I'm going to tell you what to do, but um, I'm also going to suffer on behalf of the church physically. So she was package deal, package deal saint. Yeah, I love the way you tease that out, though, how she she illustrates or sort of exemplifies how a saint should recognize and sort of embody that tension between calling the clerics to fidelity, but also calling the laity to faithfulness and obedience and obedience. I think it's yeah. really I think it's really easy for. And I'm not I'm not throwing stones here. I mean, I do this as well. Right. I think it's a natural human tendency. Right. When when you think you know better than yeah. Mother Church, uh, it's easy for you to look at people like St. Catherine of Siena. Like, see, she, even she, you know, told off the Pope. Yeah. Or Robert Bellarmine, even he said this would happen to a Pope, right? And so yeah. there, there are these saints that are often invo invoked um, as, you know, the example of how a layperson should correct a Pope. 
But I think the problem is there that it tells half the story, right? It doesn't tell the whole story. And these saints, like St. Catherine, illustrate to us, yes, the very, very powerful role that the laity have and how the laity, who make up 99.9% of the church, um, have this powerful role to, in that hierarchy, as the subordinate member in that hierarchy, to you know, correct and support the clerics. But that support doesn't only mean keeping on the straight and narrow path. It also means following them on the straight and narrow path. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. so, so, yeah, balancing that tension is really good. And I like how you highlighted that, that Catherine is indeed calling her folks to obedience. Um, and, and no, I mean, you said, she said, be a man to the Pope, but her letters to the Pope are also full of love, um, full of, um, uh, filial, um, obedience Mm -hmm. and full of respect. There's a way that she signed the letters to all the Pope, uh, all the Popes that she wrote to. I forget what it was, but it was, I mean, it was very clear that St. Catherine was writing them out of a, out of an obligation to Christ. And also still recognize them as the vicar of Christ. And so she very much gave them the, the respect that they were due in that regard. Yeah, sometimes calling them sweet, sweet Jesus on earth, right? And, and also act like a man, right? There yeah, was, exactly. <laughs> my sweet Jesus on earth and also. And, and I think I love that you said that was a friend. She was a friend to these people. She was a friend to the Pope. They trusted her. They were loved by her. And because, because she loved them and they loved her, she was able to speak the truth so radically. But I love that you said, I mean, we can look at St. Catherine and go, see, she did it. But like, do you love like her to have that kind of authority? Were you wholly like her to have that kind of authority? Are you making those, those penances, those reparations, right? Well, then and only then does your calling out actually have efficacy. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. All right, so here's a question for you, Simone. What is something, some episode of her life, perhaps, or some story from her that strikes mm-hmm. you in some way, convicting you to live a more holy life? And and as you think about it, I've got an example uh, of my own with Saint Catherine, um, and this is one that I read. So I read this. It's this story in the biography, the Sigurd Nunsa biography, and I think I'll just never forget this story about Saint Catherine because it illustrates how willing she was to give up everything. I mean, every aspect of her pride, every aspect of her, of her self-regard um, for serving others. And the story is that she was, as a nurse, she was taking care of this woman who um, had some sort, of, some sort of cancer or like an open sore uh, on, her, <laughs> on her breast. And you can imagine like medieval medicine, this open sore is just like oozing and it's odorous and not a pleasant thing to be around and to, to redress constantly. And so Catherine is taking care of this woman who, if I recall from the story, is also not a very pleasant woman, um, just temperamentally. But Catherine goes in to tend to her and is revolted by the, the smell and sight of this, just you know, kind of overpowered by her senses because the, the stench is so awful, etc. So she, she gags, basically. And she's so disappointed at herself for having that reaction and not just like, accepting the service of, of people uh, and doing what Christ would do. That she, this, she um, basically washes out this woman's sore into like a wash basin uh, and then drinks it down. Yeah. And then as the story goes, from that point forward, she had no issues ever attending to somebody and, and never was, um, never was uh, you know, greeted by an attack of nausea like that again. And um, I mean, the, the moral of the story is not that that's what nurses should do when they're repulsed <laughs> by what they're doing. I think far from it. The moral of the story is this, that 
Catherine was so singularly dedicated to what she thought Christ was calling her to do that she would go to that measure to do it. I mean, that's, I was reading that story. I was feeling physically, you know, repulsed at just like the description of what Catherine did to overcome her physical repulsion. But that, that like complete commitment to, you know, to use the words of St. Paul to beat your body into subjection so that you can better serve Christ is something that I will never forget from the story of St. Catherine of Siena. It makes me realize how, um, how, how far I'm not willing to go on a regular basis, right? Like I have to, you know, I was going to get up at five 30. I have to get up, you know, 15 or 20 minutes earlier to pray the rosary. Uh, I think I'll just sleep until five 30, you know? Um, so on a daily basis, I make decisions, uh, that are not like, not, you know, as far as their difficulty, nowhere close to what she did. Um, yes. and, and so she's just inspiring me to be a little bit better or a lot better in that regard. I had a feeling that was going to be your story because <laughs> So unforgettable. And I, I remember um, a friend of mine 10 years ago who had just made vows to consecrated virginity was reading about St. Catherine and reading the dialogue. And she got to that. Um, I, I, she got to that part and was like, I, I can't, I have to take a two week break before I pick this up again, because it's just, and this woman had just given her life totally to Christ. Yeah, so it's amazing. Willing to make huge sacrifices, but was like, okay, I need to remember this is not about me looking and being exactly like Catherine, but to, like you said very well, to have that purity of heart to give Christ whatever he's asking of me in my specific circumstances in life. The story that I kept, kept come back to is the one where she is also tending to the sick and to this woman who I think was also um, a lay Dominican who was mean to her. and. Um, didn't like Catherine and was accusing her of all sorts of things. And, and um, she, she had a vision of Jesus and Jesus said, but isn't she a, what a wonderful creature she is about the like very unlikable, mean <laughs> patient that she was tending to. And that's, that's actually the one that's really stuck out to me because as you were saying earlier, it's really hard not to be judgmental. It's really hard not to put people in a box. It's really hard to love the unlikable. And so when I'm tempted to just want to brush someone off or just, you know, subconsciously, never, never consciously like, oh, this person is annoying. You know, I think about Jesus's words to St. Catherine, but isn't, aren't they a wonderful creature? Isn't she a wonderful creature? And that has really helped me throughout the day to to look at other the to look at the other the way that Jesus looks at them and he loves them and he loves everybody and so that's been my little uh. <laughs> yeah it's it's a good one i remember that story well uh from the book and the thing that struck out at me or stuck out to me is that catherine's pride was just assaulted regularly by this person yeah. and uh, you know, she was verbally assaulted by this person. She was constantly put down by this person as was, I mean, everyone around, right? This was, I think she was just a really, I don't know how she was a Dominican. I mean, just a very, just seems like a very unpleasant person to be around. Um, and yeah, you know, Jesus's message to, to Catherine is, yeah, isn't she a wonderful creature? And that of course drives Catherine to show her the love of Jesus. And I mentioned that, that thing that she signed the letter to the popes with, it was sweet Jesus, Jesus love, which you had, you had mentioned as well. And that just embodies what St. Catherine was. And this is one of the things I love about any of the great saints 
it's not that they're super bold in confronting the Pope. It's not that they, you know, lead troops into battle or, or whatever. It's that they embody the love of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that love of Jesus can be, you know, being mean to a fellow third order Dominican who constantly belittles you. Yeah. Uh, did I say being mean? Being being nice. lovely. Being lo- yeah, not being yeah. mean to them. Uh <laughs> Or it can be, or it can be correcting the Pope in charity. Uh, but both of those things are manifestations of the love of Jesus, as she would say, "Sweet Jesus, Jesus love." And and she was just so consumed by this love for Jesus, which yeah. is exactly why she had this vision of Jesus replacing her heart with His that that burns with such intense desire for souls. Uh, and mm-hmm. that's that's such a remarkable, remarkable image to think of of that of, of Jesus placing His own sacred heart into Catherine so that she can burn even brighter for him. Mm, I love that. Exactly. I mean, I think the, her greatest, like all saints contribute contributions, if you will, like you said, it's not any of the external stuff that are just manifestations of the love of Christ, but that she was, I mean, this is, I think a phrase of Teresa of Avila actually, but it's also true for Catherine that she was homesick for heaven. She was homesick for Jesus. And that's all she wanted. That's all she wanted was to be with Jesus. And I, I'm recently been going into the life of Edith Stein and the fact that, I mean, she was a very busy professional, uh, Catholic woman, professional lectures, university life and all that, but, but everything was ordered around her spiritual life, not the other way around. And when I look at my life, I think, well, I fit my retreats, pilgrimages, prayer life around work, not the other way around. Even John Paul II, very professionally busy, if you will. Everything else was an interruption to the dialogue that was going on with Jesus. Right. Right. And so I think it's such a huge shift in, in mentality. It is. And when I think about that, I do some self-examination, like you were just saying you do with yourself. And I think like, how much do I on a regular basis long for heaven? How homesick am I for heaven? And if Mm -hmm. I'm honest with myself, I'm not very homesick for heaven. I think, you know, I look at the material comforts of, of here. I just look at the relationships that I have here. It's, uh, I'm not, always ready to sacrifice all of those for heaven, you know? Um, and it can be even something really stupid that, that pulls me away from Jesus. Like, um, I don't know. I like barbecue. Right. And so like, I don't want to go to heaven. I want to have good barbecue a few more times in my life. Right. I'm not ready to have barbecue. And when you think about it, like that sounds so stupid to be like, no, I really like barbecue and I'm gonna have that a few more times before I'm, before I'm, (laughs) before I'm in the, you know, constant presence of God. Uh, what Thomas Aquinas calls gladness unalloyed. No, I need barbecue first. Like, give me a break. But I think, I think at a, even a subconscious level, that's the way, that's the way I think a lot. That's the way a lot of us think a lot. And it is inspiring to see the saints who have, who have kind of figured this out, who have, who have been yeah. homesick because they love Jesus so intensely. Yeah. And not even that, like, not even the way we think about it. Cause I think we think the right thing we think, and we know that, that Jesus is the center, but we don't feel for him as we should. It's, it's, it's a, it's a problem of the affection, right? My intellect assent to everything of Catherine. But do I feel about Jesus the way that she felt? That's where it gets, <laughs> that's where it gets challenging. Yeah, I completely agree. There's a, another person who will probably one day be doctor of the church named John Henry Newman, who I know you're well familiar with. I was reading a biography of him earlier this year, and uh, the biographer was suggesting that, um, that if and when he's declared a doctor of the church, normally these doctors have kind of a theme associated with them. And um, he was suspecting that John Henry Newman would become the doctor of love mm. uh, because everything that Newman wrote is animated by this intense love. Uh, there is a strong linkage. I mean, certainly a formidable intellect and 
all of the doctors of the church are, but there's a linkage that, that is marked in all of them, a linkage between the intellect and the affections, like you just mentioned. Um, Love that because you wouldn't exactly put Newman in that box, but I right. think, right. Because he was such an intellectual, I mean, you could put Therese in that box, yep. you, you know, the little flower, you know, this humble little, like, just, I love Jesus and all my simplicity in a little way, but you wouldn't put Newman in that box, but, but actually it makes sense when you think about it, because again, if we go back to that Thomistic thesis of you can't love what you don't know, well, he right. knew a lot and therefore loved a lot. And I think maybe I'm making this up, but I think his motto, his, his motto was heart unto heart. Or yep. something heart speaks to heart. Yep. Heart speaks to heart. So, um, I love that. That would be just like, it's the same kind of surprises when, when, when Joseph Ratzinger becomes Pope and his first encyclicals on God is love, right? Right. You would expect it, but there it is. Yeah. I mean, same for, I mean, really any of the saints, right. But Thomas Aquinas, he's, he's, uh, you know, he's often painted as this kind of stout Dominican friar, uh, looks like he'd probably be a little pugilistic, uh, in a fight. Uh, and you know, he writes these things like the summa contra Gentiles, right? Uh, the summa right. against the Gentiles, but no, it turns, it turns out when you, when you dig just, just below the surface in this man's life, animated by an intense love for Jesus, uh, mm-hmm. you know, an intense Eucharistic devotion where he would just spend hours in front of the blessed sacrament, adoring his Lord. And there is this linkage of affection and intellect that marks all of the great saints that, that we can only aspire to. And I think that's, that's maybe one thing that, you know, we were talking at the very beginning about just our, our constant desire to dig deeper into the intellectual side of the faith. I think one challenge that I have is, is maintaining that linkage of intellect yeah. and affection, right? Um, and how, how to do that, I don't exactly know, but I think this is a starting point. Look at the great saints like St. Saint Catherine and see how they did it. Yeah, and following the very, um, very, specific, very specific circumstances and your own personal vocation that you know, maybe I want to read all the books that are on my shelf, but maybe that's not actually what God is asking me to do. And so to not make an idol of even a good thing, like the intellectual life, which is crucial, I think, to integration, but not, it it can become idolatrous. And, and we see, I mean, you know, there are a lot of rigid Thomists where you could say that has become a bit idolatrous because Thomas himself, like you said, was was in love with, with Jesus. And so, you know, that's what, that's what the intellectual life is ordered to. It's ordered to love. So if it's not getting you there while well, time for a recalibration. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Complete, that's, that's well said. And I completely agree. Let's bring this full circle Simone, since we're almost out of time, but yeah. we, we talked about St. Catherine as a saint for our age. And I had a couple final questions here, but I'm going to try to combine them if I can. So on this topic of St. Catherine as a good saint for our age, we already mentioned two of these things, right? The kind of correcting the uh, clerics in the church and living in the midst of a pandemic where we find ourselves now. Mm-hmm. So what do you think, what do you think, you know, one or two of the lessons that St. Catherine offers for us on, let's call it ultramontanism, this idea that the Pope is the end all be all and his word is final, uh, or this, this, you know, pandemic response that we've had. And the, I've been disappointed to see a lot of how our country has responded to the pandemic on a societal level. I think people are more angry than ever on, mm-hmm. on either side. I think if you're you know, on, on either side of the political spectrum or anywhere between, you can find someone to be mad at, something to be mad about. Um, I think we've had a, a pretty appalling response on a human level to the lives that have been lost in this pandemic. And that's very sad. I think we've had policy failures to protect 
you know, the most vulnerable populations in this pandemic, et cetera. Lots of problems throughout. I think the, the central thread running through is that we, we don't have a consistent life ethic. Uh, we mm-hmm. don't have the respect for human life that we should have. And we don't love our fellow human beings with the love of Jesus as, as St. Catherine did. And then on the ultramontanism point, um, you know, I think Catherine's a good antidote to ultramontanism precisely because she reminds us that the Pope is not the end all be all that this, this small little lay Dominican, uh, can write to the Pope and ask Mm -hmm. him to come back to Rome and ultimately be successful in that challenge. Um, but those are just some thoughts at the top of my head. What do you think to those two ideas? One about Catholics like us who are, uh, orthodox and holding to the teaching of the magisterium and afraid that perhaps sometimes we're a little bit more committed to that truth than our clerics are. And then yeah. on the other hand, people living in our society, uh, a society that's often scared by death, doesn't know how to confront death, doesn't know how to prepare for death. And, uh, you know, for all those reasons, I think, and more is really having a hard time coping with this pandemic. Gosh, there's so much there, Zach. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I, I packed a lot in uh, trying to trying to wrap this up. <laughs> yeah, that, I don't know if that's a wrap up question, but it's I think they're really in I mean, incredible questions and ones that I've I've been thinking about. I I I've been disappointed. Yeah, I've been disappointed in um in our in our pastors. Um I've been disappointed in the lack of apostolic creativity in terms of how to pastorally be present to the sheep during this time, I have to say that that's true. I have been disappointed. At the same time, I haven't really lost my peace over it because, well, it's not, it's not anything new that this is a problem. I mean, it's an embarrassing thing when you were part of a new evangelization, right? We get really pumped up about the new evangelization, but the new evangelization is in short saying that we ourselves as a church We've got some family issues. We don't know who dad is. We don't know who Jesus is. You know, when, when Jesus asked St. Catherine, do you know who you are? And do you know who I am? I think this whole time of, of COVID has been a great time to ask that question. Do I know who I am? And do I know who you are? Because if I lose my peace over the lack of holiness of others, then there's something that's lacking in me that needs to be addressed. And even the fact that I don't have access to the sacraments as I wish, as it ought to be, perhaps, right? Perhaps, because again, I don't know everything. Can I still not use this time to grow in spiritual communion and in intimacy with Christ? And can my obedience to things that maybe I don't think should be what is being, is the right choice, right? For the, for, from my pastors, can my obedience to that make me even holier and more well disposed to receive Jesus, even if I'm not paradoxically receiving the sacraments. So those are my thoughts on that. And so there's no obstacle to my communing with Jesus. I love that. That's very well said and beautiful. I think, again, I mean, I'm always trying to do self-examination. I don't always do it well, but uh, there are, there are things, you know, there are ways that I've handled myself in this COVID time. There are ways that I've allowed myself to get frustrated with church leadership. There are ways that I've allowed myself to get frustrated with just my neighbors. But I will say that I'm optimistic, not even for my own part, but for the part of other people in the church who have handled this with more grace than I have, who are returning to church, uh, with renewed hearts, with a true longing for the Eucharist on fire to go. I think it's indisputably true that 
the church will, will come out smaller than this because there will be people yeah. who had a general dispensation in place for two or three months, stayed away from the sacraments and just thought, you know what? I don't actually really need that. I'm good. But there are others who are going to come back more on fire, mm-hmm. uh, more zealous in a, in, a, in a good sense of the word, um, longing for the Eucharist and then ready to turn back around, um, catechize uh, and equip others to go out into the world and, and serve Jesus in that way. So I'm really excited about that. I think it's, it's one, of those th- one of those times when, as you said, we don't know everything that's going on, which is not even to say that the bishops or our, our priests know what's going on, but God, right. God knows what's going on and, and, right. and, and God's doing something here. And I'm excited to see what that looks like in the future. I think so too. I'm, I welcome the smaller church. I welcome it. I welcome the smaller, truer church because it will more easily be a sign in this you know, Catherine was in a time of decline, right? It was a time of decline. We're in a time of decline. The more that we can become smaller, as Ratzinger predicted, the church will become small. It will be painful to see the institutions and the things that we've kind of leaned on, the externals that, that we've gotten cozy and comfy with. But what will emerge is an apostolic evangelizing church that can really start to game change. Yeah, exactly. And because when we say we want a smaller church or we're okay with a smaller church, we're, we're not, of course, saying that we want less people to be saved. We're, right. we're really speaking at, I mean, it, to use an analogy, it's actually Jesus's analogy, but I'm the vine, you are the branches. So, you know, to have a healthy, full, flourishing, big vine, you need to prune it from time to time, right? Because mm-hmm. pruning it gets rid of the dead ones, the dead branches and, and clears way for better growth in the future. And so the smaller, yes. purer church provides a cornerstone for us to to, to be more you know, closely united to the Eucharist as a source and summit, to do catechesis really well, and to turn outward from there and then, and then grow the church anew and go, go out into a secular world ready to do the work of Jesus. So. Yes, and for, to, to, for, the, for us to be true witnesses so that we can, they can, we can be seen clearly, right? It, it's too distracting. There's too much in the way when there's all this like stuff. Right. And the stuff isn't working. Yeah. It's not working. <laughs> yeah. It's not- it's no, that's exactly right. There's, there's too much stuff. I think your average parish is, is very distracted by all the things that are going on and, and needs to focus on getting back to the essentials, getting back to the root of the faith. It all starts with the Eucharist uh, and the, the rest of the sacraments, and it, it goes outward from there. Right. And I, I've been stunned, Zach, by the, the women who've reached out to me within Dow saying, I don't want to go back. Particularly, I'm, t- I'm speaking of the church workers the, the, saying, I don't want to go back to my busy, busy parish. It's too much. Yeah. I'm enjoying being home. I'm enjoying spending time with my children. Am I, am I bad? Am I a bad Catholic? Cause I'm not going to be volunteer. I don't want to volunteer at 10 to 15 things. Well, how about if we be, how about if we recalibrate and say, what are the essentials? What is bringing people face to face with Jesus? Where that, those questions that Jesus asked Catherine, do you know who you are? Do you know who I am? That we're becoming what John Paul II's vision for the parish was, which is to be a school of prayer, you know, and can we get rid of the rest? Right. Yeah. I love it. Let's do it. Let's do it. I'm ready. (laughs) All right. Well, Simone, we are out of time for today, but uh, we already mentioned this once at the outset, but if someone wanted to read, I don't know, say a study guide to help them learn about St. Catherine of Siena or maybe one of the other uh, wonderful women doctors of the church, where, where might they go to find that? Yeah, so go to uh, endowgroups.org and we've got, a, check out our link on the store and there's a ton of study guides and I'm going through Edith Stein right now. So there's some possibilities to get involved with that in terms of within Dow. But um, the, the St. Catherine one saying the world ablaze is I think one of our 
our top, I think it's one of our best, if not our best, besides Letter to Women and the JP2 stuff. I think it's our best. Sounds so. great. So endowgroups.org? .org. Yep. Uh, setting the World Ablaze is a St. Catherine one, but you can find a lot of other resources there and you can follow Simone's work. She does a lot of work for Endow as the director of program growth, but also on her personal blog, culturalgypsy.com. And stay tuned. We might bring Simone back for a conversation about St. Edith Stein, uh, which would also be a really good one. So Simone, thanks so much for the time as always. To our listeners, thank you. If you want me to drop a note to Simone or you want to just drop me a note, Zach, Z-A-C, at creedalcatholic.com. And until next time, God bless you. Thank you.